Let us just bow in prayer. As you bow, you may want to pray for yourself that God will speak to you. And also pray for Pastor Kokpai that God will speak through him. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks at how you have blessed us so much. And Lord, you want to use us to be a blessing to others. And I pray that, Lord, this afternoon, may you awake our, our whole being to listen to your word. And you will continue to challenge us, motivate us, uh, inspire us to be your channel of blessing. I pray for Pastor Kofai, may you anoint him with your spirit and your strength and your power that, Lord, as he speak and share your word, I pray that, Lord, you will use him as your mighty instrument to speak to us so that, Lord, we will respond to you in a way that will glorify your name, to spread your love. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, let me carry on with some of the announcements. You know that we are celebrating our 130th anniversary this year in the church, and we do that by embarking on a 40-day campaign of blessing. So we are nearing, well, we are actually in our last week. Next week uh, is Testimony Sunday. Uh, I have a few people who have approached me to say that they can share something, uh, but from the second service, not yet. So please, if over the last 40 days, as you join this church in this campaign of blessing and you see all these uh, little projects that we, 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 we have done or are going to do, uh, and there's something that is encouraging for the church, something special that has happened in your life, do uh, let me know, and then we'll work out the time for you to share uh, right here uh, at 12 o'clock next Sunday, okay? So this week is Bless the Needy. Of course, you can mix it all around. In fact, today I gave out several things to bless those people who have blessed me, okay? It doesn't have to be week by week, but this week we are like focusing on blessing the needy, and that's why... As a church, we've organized a small project to go and bless some orphans in JB. Bless the, the needy. The needy need not be needy as in financially. Just yesterday, I was called upon uh, to go to someone's home, and this home is in Queen Astrid Park. I tell you, my jaw hit the floor when I went to his home. It's huge, but he was very needy because his daughter, 18 years old, um, had a relapse of leukemia. So I prayed in her home, I prayed in her room, and then he drove us in his Mercedes, don't know, 500, 700, 800, uh, to, to NUH, and we prayed for his daughter there. So someone needy, the Lord might just impress uh, upon your heart. You see something, you pray by faith, and you just go and bless the needy. So bless the needy. We have this, may I pray with you. This, this you can use till your dying day, okay? It's not like it's for 40 days, uh, Carry one in your pocket, in your Bible, and as the Lord prompts you to a friend or even to a stranger, you can ask them, can I pray with you? So use this. I still have 27 copies of this sticker. It's very nicely done. You just peel it off and you stick it on something. The last thing we stuck it on was Kue Lapis. Okay? Uh, so if you had not blessed a neighbor, okay, what it reads here is, may you be blessed celebrating our 130th anniversary, and then it quotes this verse in Galatians 5.14. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So if you can find a way to use these 27 uh, stickers, get it from me, stick it onto something, and give it away to your friend. It can be quail piece, it can be something else. Right? And then, uh, yeah, so this is the, the blessing campaign. And today we want to look at this cute sermon title, Being the Most Loving Being. Who's the most loving being, the most loving person you know? Does a name just come right out flowing from your tongue? Or is it kind of difficult? Kind of difficult to name a name. The most loving person you know. Okay, let's switch it. 
Who's the most irritating person you know? Might be easier, right? Many names come to your head. Uh, and, and what are the things that people do that really irritate you the most? So turn to your neighbor and tell them who irritates you the most or what irritates you the most. Okay, I'm just kidding, okay? I'm just kidding because, because that's what irritates me. The kind, the people, who are the people who say, turn to your neighbor and say this and say that? Preachers. And when they do that, it really irritates me. But you've got to learn something, okay? If we invite a speaker, or even if one of our speakers from this church says, turn to your neighbor, just humor him. Uh, just do it, you know, out of politeness and out of love. Okay, just do it. Um, but seriously, what kind of people irritates you? For those of you who drive, like I do, like you've been queuing up patiently, you know that three lane filters into two because there's an accident somewhere. And this joker comes right from the, uh, up to you from the left on the hard shoulder and then cuts the queue and jumps in front of you. <laughs> really irritates you. And here you are, it's not fair, it's not fair. What about, what about when someone calls you, you pick up the phone and it says, who's that? I said, what? How rude can you be? It's like, then you answer, you got to tell me who you are before I tell you who I am. Right? Something like that. Or um, smokers. Okay, people who smoke right in front of your face or, or in a table right next to you. And, and seriously, they are not smokers, right? Because what smokes is the cigarette that smokes. So they are not smokers. They are basically suckers. Right? Because they suck in the smoke. Okay, that was rude. <laughs> but back to our first question. Who's the most loving person you know? So let's be systematic, okay? Let's be systematic. Let's think about the most loving person in your cell group. Most loving person in your cell group. And then, next up, maybe the most loving person in all of PPH, in this church. And then, next up, the most loving person you know living in Singapore. And then, the most loving person in the whole world. And I'll turn to your neighbor and tell them who they are. Again, just kidding, because I do not want to be my most irritating person myself. So you want my answers. In my cell group, I'm thinking I have someone in mind, someone who's always willing to serve, just ready to go out of his or her way. Okay, I'm not going to tell you who, who this person is to protect both the innocent and the guilty. And then the most loving person in PPH, I also have somebody in mind, somebody really generous, very gracious, never rude, and as far as I know, never impatient. Who's the most loving person in Singapore? I think of my ex-colleague's mother, who was, is uh, a foster mom to many orphaned children or disadvantaged children where the Ministry uh, of Community Development uh, 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 would just refer someone to her. Maybe, you know, the parents have died or parents went to jail or, or the parents have, uh, have ill-treated this child and she would just foster this child into a home. Some of them for like 20 years. Some of them are mentally handicapped and she would just look after them. Some of them she would just love for two or three years and then they found uh, an adoption, uh, 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 people who adopt and they should just give this child up with great pain. And she's done so many, so many and still doing. And so sometimes I wonder, how does this person have so much love to give away? How? Who's the most loving person in the world? I think of Mother Teresa. Right? The, the sacrifice, the, the service, her love speaks so loud that really I haven't come across too many people who question her theology. Even though we, we may not agree with some of her theology, but her love speaks so loud. She loves so loud. Who's the most loving person in this world and beyond, the most loving being? Jesus Christ, who came, who died for our sins, who continues to love us with an everlasting love. So there you have it, the most loving being from cell group to the universe. You just have to learn from the example and discernment is over.
You know, so that's how you become the most loving person in the world. Just kind of like follow the example. Not so easy, right? I searched on the internet and this is what I found in one of the websites. It says, how can I be the most loving person I am capable of being today? Seven pointers, according to this lady, I think. It says, number one, greet my husband with a smile and a hug and a kiss when he wakes up every morning. Number two, forgive him for snoring last night. Number three, patiently listen to my daughter describe her day when she comes home from school. Number four, greet every one of my students with a smile as they enter my classroom. Number five, don't complain. Number six, be generous with compliments with uh, everybody that I encounter today. And number six, uh, sorry, number seven, love myself by eating healthy food, drinking plenty of water. Say, what? Being the most loving person includes drinking plenty of water. It's kind of like wishy-washy, right? You catch the drift. Wishy-washy, very dilute kind of love. Uh, but God has a different answer. And God distilled, if you still catch my drift, <laughs> the secret of being the most loving person for us in 1 Corinthians 13. You know the passage, but I want to read the whole chapter to you. And please turn to your Bible. Um, I don't have all the verses up there. 1 Corinthians 13. Let the Word of God speak to you directly. Let it there's a spiritual impact. I hope that this will be really a divine moment as we consider this passage once again. I know that uh, many of us have read it many, many times, but let it speak to you again. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, it, is, it is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the Word of God. It certainly beats drinking more water and forgiving a husband for snoring. What makes a loving person a loving person? I want to distill three points from 1 Corinthians 13. And the first one I want to share with you is about self-denial. We see in 1 Corinthians 13 a lot of love that is about not this and not that, not this, not this, not that. Love is not envious, not boastful, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, does not delight in evil. Not, not, not. And this is about the carnal man, the sinful man, the man of the flesh that is envious, who is proud, who is rude, who is self-seeking. But the spiritual man, the man whose life has been submitted to God, is not he practices, she practices self-denial. And so we are not envious, we are not proud, we are not boastful, just as Jesus himself practiced self-denial. And you know, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the way to the cross, he prayed this prayer. He said, Father, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, 
take this cup of suffering away from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So he denied his own flesh, who every cell on his body says, no, you don't go to the cross, it's painful. It might not even be worthwhile. He denied that and he obeyed his father. He went to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus practiced self-denial by going to the cross and he preached self-denial. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says to his disciples, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Preach what he practiced, and he practiced what he preached. And this is for us self-denial, one of the key characteristics of being a loving person. You know, a man um, stopped and he opened the door for a lady behind him to pass through the door. But instead of receiving appreciation for this act, the lady was irate. She said, you don't have to hold the door open for me just because I'm a woman. So what does a man do? He takes a deep breath. He's thinking self-denial, self-denial. I'm going to fight back. Self-denial. And say, not rude, not easily angered, not irritable. And then he found the answer. He says, lady, I didn't hold this door open because you're a woman. I held this door open because I'm a gentleman. Because I'm just trying to be the most loving person I know. Rick Warren who actually created this 40 Days of Love series, which we have adopted and are adapting. He had um, this family in his church. Our father is Lee, the mother is called Penny, and a little boy called Douglas. And they play Little League uh, baseball, and Douglas' team got thrashed in the baseball game. And so the opposite team member came up to Douglas and said, your team sucks. What does little Douglas do? He says, self-denial. I envy, man, because this other team got the gold medal. I got nothing. This guy's rude. I want to be rude back to him. I'm really irritated. I want to note this down, and if I find some way to take revenge, I'll do that. But no, he says, I practice self-denial. He denied this, and he came to the opposite team member, who was this little brat who said, your team sucks, and he says, you pitched a great game. He spoke words of grace. Some people say you don't get angry, you get even, right? If you do that, then you are same as the other brat. If little Douglas had gotten even, he would be exactly at the same level as the other brat. You are better than that. PPH members, sons and daughters of the living God, Christians, you are better than that. You are a spiritual man, you are a spiritual woman, and you can deny your flesh as God gives us the strength. You can deny the carnal nature. You can take up the cross and follow Jesus. The most loving person I know asks God for help, deny himself daily, takes up his cross and follow Jesus' example. And this is a continual prayer that with God's help, we are in the process of becoming the most loving being we know. Deny self, take up the cross, follow Jesus. And so what makes a loving person a loving person? Self-denial. Secondly, what makes a loving person a loving person? I call it a sanctified memory. Who's got better memory? You or God? Who keeps better records? You or God? I think the answer is obvious, right? But think about this, huh? Several weeks ago, I came across this chapter in Hebrews 11. You know, Hebrews 11 is talking about great men of faith. Great men of faith. And verse 32 says this, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Think about these names. What do you think about when you read about Gideon and, and Barak and, and, and these names? Let me tell you what I thought. On that day, I thought, Gideon, oh my, Gideon. Gideon was hiding in a wine press when God approached him to take leadership and to lead his people out of being oppressed. 
And then he gave excuses. He said, hey, I'm the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my own family. And then he asked God for a sign continually. And even when he did something, he, he like took cover in, in darkness when he cut down the Asherah pole and he tore down certain uh, altars of Baal. He did it at night instead of the daytime. And after he did that, he asked for golden earrings. I won't do that. He asked for golden earrings because the pagan nations around him does that. So he asked for golden earrings, he melted down the gold, and he created a golden ephod, kind of like a breastplate. And he worshipped it. He worshipped this golden ephod. That's Gideon for you. Then Barak, Barak in Judges chapter 4 and 5, Barak was hiding under the skirts of this woman judge called Deborah. I read to you verse 8, Barak says to her, and Barak was supposed to take leadership again and, and to fight against oppressors. And Barak says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Verse 8. I think he said like that, huh? with that kind of tone. Hey, come on. He was hiding under the skirts of this Deborah when he was supposed to take leadership. And this God praised. And, and Deborah says, I'll go, I'll go. But then the honor will come to me. And so Barak went. Samson, you know all about Samson and Delilah, right? Again, chasing skirts and then hiding under uh, Delilah and, and a very, very sad ending with, the, with his eyes gouged out and all that. You know about Samson. Jephthah. Jephthah um, was the son of a prostitute. So understandably, he had self-esteem uh, issues, I think. And I think in compensation for those issues, he talked very big. So he says, I will take charge. Again, I will go out and defeat the oppressors. And, and I do not know for what reason he said, but when I come back from victory, the first person I see, I will sacrifice as a human sacrifice. And it turned out to be his daughter. What kind of a man is this? Man of faith? And Samson. Samson, great man, good prophet, but very poor father, uh, whose sons was perverting justice, having dishonest gains and all that. And he said nothing. And Hebrews 11.16 tells us that these are the men that God is therefore not ashamed to be called their God. And God commended them for their faith. These are the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samson. God did not keep a record of their wrongs. Psalm 130 verse 3 if you, O Lord, had kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? And the whole Psalm 130 is a, it's just a great prayer. Indeed, who can stand if God had kept a record of sins? If God had kept a record of sins, I don't think you will find Gideon and Samson and, and Barak in the Bible being praised to high heavens as men of faith, heroes of faith. The Apostle Peter wronged Jesus. He denied Jesus three times. Thomas wronged Jesus. He just couldn't believe that Jesus would rise from the dead. But Jesus did not keep a record of wrongs. And he then sent, Jesus, uh, sent Peter on a very important mission to bring the gospel to Rome. He sent Thomas all the way to India. Jesus is kind. Jesus is not rude. Jesus is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. He has a sanctified memory. He remembers the good. And just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, you can say that Jesus always protected Peter and Thomas, always trusts them, always hoped in them, always perseveres with them, always trusts, hopes, perseveres with us. So Jesus did not fail Peter and therefore, Peter did not fail Jesus. He kept no record of wrongs. And so the most loving person I know has a sanctified memory, keeping no record of wrongs. And so with God's help, I am now in the process of being the most loving person I know, and I will not keep a record of wrong. I will sanctify my memory in God. So what makes a loving person a loving person? Self-denial sanctified memory. And now I need to find another S, which was very difficult. Uh, so I say, which is kind of like, 
Hokkien for everything. Uh, all in, all in. Uh, one of the lady, ladies uh, after the first service came up to me. Uh, I found you an ass. I said, what, donkey? <laughs> Just say surrender, lah. don't say sakaliao. You know? Anyway, you know, we do not, as a loving person, love moderately. Do you love moderately or in moderation? God doesn't. And you know, this word moderation is only found once and in the King James Version, and also in the New King James Version. And then it doesn't even mean the moderation that we understand it, understand moderation to be. It meant in, in that King James Version as gentleness and in the New King James Version as decency. But we are commanded in Matthew 22:37 to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the second is, is, is the same. So we have to love our neighbor as ourselves with all our heart, soul, and mind. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, do everything, do all in love. But we say, hey, wait a minute. We got to live a balanced life. No extremes in moderation. But not when it comes to love. You know? We got to be balanced in love. You know, the balanced position is the hardest one to sustain. And the most unstable position. If you look at this, Balance, you're trying to balance in moderation. We've got to go all in, all in. Again, the word balance, you can say it's not found in the Bible. When it is found in the Bible, it always refers to a weighing scale. It doesn't talk about this kind of balancing like on a high wire. So you look at God. God, well, of course, God can praise Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and all that, but not so, not so in an unbalanced way, right? God should have said, yeah, you guys are good, you are a man of faith, but remember, you know, you were hiding under the skirts of somebody. Remember, you made this golden effort, so you are okay, but you're not quite okay. God did not do that. God was so unbalanced. He went to the extreme and He called them a great cloud of witnesses. In Hebrews 11, he called them heroes of faith. And they were sinners. But God did not keep that record of wrong. You know what? I like God to call us heroes of love. Every one of us here, heroes of love. Just like Barak, just like Samson, just like Gideon. But what do we do then? But we always say, Let's play it safe. Let's play. Don't get fanatical about this Christian thing. Don't go to extremes. You must have balance. So you love God moderately. It's like, okay, I'm going to be a bit, little bit harsh here. Okay? It's like some people never get around to public testimony of their faith in baptism. You know why? Especially in the Chinese. In the Chinese mind, baptism is like a point of no return. So, you hear, okay, I hear many, many times, you hear uh, parents who will tell the children, it's okay, you can go to church, they all teach you good, but don't get baptized. Huh? Don't get baptized. It's like point of no return. You can go to church, and maybe even, you can even go on a mission trip, but don't go to extremes, okay? Don't become a missionary and just have some balance. Have some balance. Then you can turn back. But Jesus went all in for us. Jesus could have like, touch you a little bit and don't. But he just went and gave his all for us. And, and then we think that we are living this clever, balanced life by not being so extreme in loving God and loving our neighbour and just living life in balance and moderation. Cannot be. Cannot be. If one dollar is all you have and you can use it lovingly, use it all up. Why give 90 cents and keep 10 cents back? If one starfish left stranded on a beach is the one that you can throw back into the sea to save it, throw that one back into the sea. Don't think of a global solution to rescue all starfishes on planet Earth, which is what we do. If you can love that one uncle or one auntie cleaning your table at a hawker centre later on, just love that one. Stack up your dishes nicely, 
look them in the eye and just say thank you. Don't go and look for this global solution to help all poor cleaners who are above 70 years old who really ought to be at home enjoying life instead of working in a hawker centre and write this fantastic paper to the government to solve this global problem. It's not your fault. Love with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, what you can see, what you can do something about, do that. Don't be this clever guy thinking of a global solution. If you can, of course, it's great. If that one stick of wood is all you have to throw into the fire to keep people warm, then throw that one stick of wood into the fire. And I want to share a poem with you that I came across. It's called The Coal Within by this poet called James Patrick Kinney. So listen to this carefully. I, I found it so good. Six humans trapped by happenstance in bleak and bitter cold. Each one possessed a stick of wood, or so the story goes. The dying fire in need of logs, the first man held his back, for on the faces around the fire, he noticed one was black. The next man looking across the way saw one not of his church and couldn't bring himself to give the first his stick of birch. The third one sat in tattered clothes. He gave his coat a hitch. Why should his lock be put to use to warm the idle rich? The rich man just sat and thought of the wealth he had to store and how to keep what he has earned from the lazy, shiftless poor. The black man's face bespoke revenge as the fire passed from his sight. For all he saw in his stick of wood was a chance to spite the white. The last man of this forlorn group did not accept for gain. Giving only to those he who gave was how he played the game. Their locks held tight in death's still hand was proof of human sin. They didn't die from the cold without. They died from the cold within. So you just keep and keep and keep. You have this one stick and you refuse to throw it into the fire to keep five other people warm. Because why do they deserve it? One's black, one doesn't come from my church. This one is too rich. What happens when you throw your stick into the fire? When you sakaleao, when you surrender your stick? Yes, you provide fuel for the fire. But you do something else. You break something. You break something. You break this chain of unlove that we saw in this poem around these six men. You break something. You break this chain of unlove. And remember what I told you about three weeks ago. What is the opposite of love? The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference. It's bochap. Hokkien for don't care. Apathy. That's the opposite of love. And when you throw your stick in, you break this chain of apathy. And who knows, the other five may throw their stick in as well. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. He must break something. He must break this chain of ungrace and unlove. Take up the cross daily and follow me. So we take up the cross daily. We break this chain of unlove that is called indifference daily. What are the qualities needed to break this chain of unlove? Self-denial, sanctified memory, sakaleo, go all in. The most pers loving person I know denies himself, keeps no record of wrongs, and just jump right in, go all in. Not in moderation, not in pursuit of some impossible balancing act. You love with all your heart, or your soul, or your mind. To be a loving person, love is patient, love is kind, not rude, not... Very nice qualities, but it is not about some psychological behavioral change. You know, you can treat Pavlov's dog, and you can like reward and reward or punish, and then this person will become more loving. I have not come across a university course called Loving 101 that trains people to be loving. It doesn't work that way. Because we are talking about life and death. Life and death. That God gave His life for us to love us. 
And He calls us to die to ourselves daily in order to love Him and to love our neighbour as ourselves. So this is a life and death thing. It is not a behavioural transformation uh, thing. If God is not in this equation, then I think it's, it is quite hopeless. You and I should not even try. No need to try. But if God is in this equation of love, as in God equals love, God is love, God loves you, God loves us, then we have hope. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Finally, i just like to end uh, with this story that I came across. This was a story written uh, in the New York Times on the 21st of January this year. It talks about a guy called Oli, O-L-L-Y, Neil, that's his surname, N-E-A-L. In the 1950s, Oli Neil was just a poor black kid with an attitude. He was one among 13 siblings, brothers and sisters, in a house in the 50s with no electricity. Father had a second grade education, was a farmer, poor farmer. And he attended a school exclusively black in the, in the 1950s. It was a time of segregation, okay? Blacks and whites do not mix. And small school, underfunded, all blacks, teachers included, always fighting and cursing. And he remembers reducing his English teacher, Mildred Grady, to tears. He said, I was not a nice kid. I had a reputation. I was the one who was able to make her cry. Making teachers cry was a big deal then because in, teachers in those days, uh, there's a certain civic civilness uh, about, about that. Uh, and, and they call all their, their students Mr. So-and-so. I remember when I first went to university in, in, uh, in the late 70s, I was so surprised when this professor called me Mr. Tang. And even like handing out scripts to you, Mr. Tang, Mr. So-and-so. And that's the, the environment uh, of, of those days. And so Ollie would disrupt the class intentionally by calling out to the teacher, Hey, Mildred! When, when Mrs. Mildred Grady would call him Mr. Neil, he would call the teacher, Hey, Mildred! Like, I, I'm not going to do your homework or something like that. And Neil's ad, uh, Ollie Neil adds that this teacher would have good reason to say this boy is incorrigible. Incorrigible, hopeless. He was also a regular shoplifter back then stealing from the store where he worked part-time. And it's like hopeless, okay? All he knew is just hopeless. One day in 1957, when he was 16 years old, he cut class and he, he just wandered into the library, set up by Mrs. Grady, the English teacher whom he had tormented. He wasn't much of a reader, doesn't like reading, but he spotted a book with a cover like this, uh, in those days, this was considered very sexy. So the book was called The Treasure of Pleasant Valley by this black author called Frank Yerby. And it, it looked appealing enough to Neil, so he took the book and then he thought about checking it out of the library. Then he thought again, no, I cannot let people know that I'm reading a book. First of all, macho kid like me don't read books. Secondly, not this kind. And so he took it. He just took it, he stole it in keeping with his macho bad boy image. Took it, went home, read it, loved it. After finishing the book, he came back to the library looking for another one. And lo and behold, a second book by Frank Yerby was on the same shelf that he took the first one from. So he took that one as well, stole it. Came back a third time, he found another book. This happened four times. And then he said he got hooked onto reading. And it graduated from there to more serious stuff. He began to read books, magazines, newspapers, and graduated to even philosophers like Albert Camus. And in 1991, he was appointed the first black district attorney in Arkansas, USA. A few years later, he became a judge. But there's more. At a high school reunion some years later, the teacher, remember Mrs. Mildred Grady, talked to Neil and told him that she saw him stealing that first book. And her impulse was this, no good, good for nothing, kid. In spite of all that you've done, you make me cry, you 
you still, I should have written your name down at least in my little black book to keep a record of wrong and one day maybe uh, expel you from school or I'll just catch you by the scruff of the neck and say, you thieving, whatever, and punished him. But she didn't do that. She denied every fiber in her body that wanted to do that and instead, she let him take the book. More than that, that weekend, she drove 70 miles to Memphis, Tennessee, to a bookshop she knew had black authors, and she found another Frank Yerby book. And she bought it with her own money, brought it back to the library, and put it on the same shelf that Ollie O'Neill took the book from. And then he read the second book, did it twice more, drove 70 miles again. Third book, drove 70 miles again, fourth book. And that's how Ollie O'Neill got hooked onto reading and subsequently transformed, became a judge. And so it's not easy in those days. It's 1957. Driving 70 miles is not easy. Number two, looking for a book by this black author, Frank Yerby, was not easy, but she did it. And then at her funeral, Ollie was asked to speak. And he said, I credit Mrs. Grady for getting me in the habit of enjoying reading so that I was able to go to law school and survive. You know, in the 50s, in his days, coming 13 children from a poor neighborhood, all they thought about was survive, but he became a judge. So what is this story about? Some good-for-nothing delinquent made good? It could have been so different. It could have been so different. A rude teenager who terrorizes his teachers? It could have been so different. You know, one of the teachers here told me, that uh, our Ministry of Envi uh, uh, Education is spending a lot of money on security in our schools these days. Uh, closed circuit TV and fences and guardhouse and all that to protect our students from terrorists that will come in uh, like through a bomb or something. And then he says something so interesting. He says, no, the terrorists are inside the school. They terrorize the teachers. It could have been so different. Mildred Grady could have gotten very angry, could have even gotten even, and nobody would have blamed her, seriously. I mean, with a kid like that, nobody would have blamed her. But she didn't. She denied herself. She did not keep that record of wrong. She sanctified her memory, and she just went all in. 70 miles once, twice, three times. Own money from own pocket, buy the book. And what a change. She was simply being the most loving person she knew. Okay, you know the question, who is the most loving person you know? We think Mother Teresa, but who knows Mother Teresa? You know her? You read about her? Who really, really knows Mother Teresa? God does, yes. And Mother Teresa herself. Only two persons. Who knows you? God does and yourself. So you want to be the most loving person you know is you. It's you. The most loving person that you know is you. You know, and God knows. And God is going to call you a hero of faith and a hero of love. I mentioned, was it a few weeks ago, and I, as I mentioned to the youth service when I spoke to them, I said, I want all of us in PPH to be called lover boys and lover girls. Yeah, that's what he's going to, when he sees you, this is a lover boy. This guy knows how to love. He's the most loving person I know. He's the most loving person you yourself know. So let's uh, think about this. Let me ask the musicians to come and help us to close our session together. Carry the cross daily. You know, if God is not in this, yeah, you are just some behavioral you're, you're hoping for some behavioral therapy to be a better person, to be a loving person. It's not going to work. There is no loving 101, no loving 201 that's going to transform you. It's got to be God. It's got to be dying to our sinful self and taking on the power of God that is in the Holy Spirit. It's got to be that sanctified memory. How difficult it is for us not to keep a record of wrongs. For some of us, you may well even be storing up roots of bitterness. That this is something I will never forgive, I will never forget. One day I'm going to get even. 
how difficult it is to not keep this record of wrong if God is not in this love equation. And then jumping all in. I think I said some quite harsh words about baptism, but seriously think about it. I know there are situations where you might be better off waiting for a while, but make that decision in your mind that it is going to happen. I am going to testify for my Lord in baptism and see if God will find a way out for you, especially for those who are experiencing heavy parental pressures not to. But don't do Christianity. Don't love Jesus moderately. You cannot. It is not possible. So let's ask God to change our hearts. That's not therapy. It's transformation. The whole thing's got to change. We come to God and we ask Him, shall we stand and sing this song together? Make it our prayer. take the next few minutes to maybe a time of consecration make that transaction with the Lord here today tell him I need your help to deny myself take up the cross daily and follow you to love you with all my heart soul and mind to love my neighbor as myself I want to open up the altar for that that's, even as you make that decision, that commitment in your mind, take a physical step of faith. Be counted among the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. And walk up to the front and make that commitment to the Lord. And we'll pray with you to seal it. Self-denial. Secondly, a sanctified memory. There's something in your memory, something in your heart that still makes you keep a record of wrongs. In fact, it may well be growing into a root of bitterness that the Bible says will defile not just yourself, but will defile many. Surrender it to the Lord. Leave it here at the altar. Let Jesus take care of it. Let it be nailed to the cross. But you walk out of here with a cleansed mind that keeps no record of wrongs. Self-denial, sanctified mind, and lastly, go all in. Go all in. Don't let these global problems of this and that paralyze you. You see something that you can do something about, that one dollar, that one stick of wood, that one starfish. Go all in love with all your heart, your soul, 
and mine. So as we sing this short song once again, I'd like to encourage you to take this thing in your heart and take a step of, a physical step of faith as well. To come to pray with someone or to kneel before the Lord and say, this is me. I want to deny myself. This is me. I want a sanctified memory. And this is me. I'm going to go all in for you, God. Change my heart, oh God. I just want to encourage all of us that when God looks at you if he preaches do not keep a record of wrongs he practices it he's not going to look at you and say you sinner he looks at you and he sees heroes of faith heroes of faith and especially for so many who are young here you're going to be doing great exploits of faith for God when he looks at you he sees okay a lover boy a lover girl he sees heroes of love even this afternoon at lunch or something, you're going to be loving someone and that you're going to bring such a blessing of love to people around you. That's what He sees. And He commends you for your faith. He commends you for your love. He does not keep a record of wrongs. This is our God. And you can be the most loving person you know. So I want to pray for you and send you out into this love-deprived world and you're going to make a, a difference. So Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 13. And all the bits there that look so difficult that we fail so often. But still, you look at us differently. You do not keep a record of our wrongs and you send us out into the world, heroes of faith, heroes of love. A people who bless with all we have, heart, soul and mind. And so go into the world and be His channels of blessing, be people of love. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let us not lift our souls to 